0: clean line design that sets it apart from the look-alike.
1: Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking, right now, on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin.
2: Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today's topic, financial fraud. In the beginning, there was William F. Miller, a New York bookkeeper who, in 1899, deceived investors out of a million dollars by promising returns that got him the nickname 520% Miller. Miller's feat inspired a hard-working transnational thinker in Boston by the name of Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tabaldo Ponzi, to promise investors a return of 50% every 45 days or 100% every 90 days. And when that fraud collapsed, that enterprising Bostonian gave his name to his financial machinations, the Ponzi scheme. Joining us today from Atlanta, Georgia, is Greg Hayes of Hayes Financial an expert in financial frauds, a past president of the National Association of Federal Equity Receivers, and a man who knows what it is to lose a 300 pound grouper to a wily hammerhead shark. Greg, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Ted. Good to be here.
2: So let's start at the top. What exactly is a Ponzi scheme?
0: Well, uh, it's, a Ponzi scheme is an investment fraud where uh, high returns are promised to an to investor uh, with, with, where the money from one investor is used to pay another uh, investor. The, the situation has changed a lot since Madoff where in the media these days, you'll hear the term Ponzi scheme applied to all types of different frauds. But but there is a certain legal definition of a Ponzi scheme, and and that's been expanded a lot over the you know over the last ten years. Where if you flip on the media, every every fraud you hear about, somebody in the media will call it a Ponzi scheme.
2: But a, but a Ponzi scheme, from what you've described, early investors are paid with funds invested by later investors. So yes, so, the, so the guy who puts right. a thousand bucks in in week one is if he's getting his 50% returns in 45 days, then he's getting his $1,500 back from an investor who who put in money later. No investment was actually made. It's just cycling money from later investors to earlier investors.
0: That's exactly right. It's a pretty simple scheme, really, when you think about it. I mean, it would be very easy to, to, to uh, perpetuate one of these types of frauds where you get money in from one investor and you, and you use that money to pay high returns back to that investor to begin with. You know, if, if you got that, like your example, you get a thousand dollars from somebody. You, uh, you you pay him back twenty percent at a at a return in a very short time, or twenty five percent, and he goes off and tells his friends what a great deal it is, and and he, in essence, recruits other people to the fraud. He gets his buddies in, and his friends, and, and other investors follow, and you start using all that money uh, that comes in to pay to pay other investors.
2: So in the in the land of financial schemes, we we hear we hear two talked about uh, and probably mistakenly interchangeably uh one is a ponzi scheme the other is the pyramid scheme how do they differ
0: well they're, they're totally different um but you'll you'll hear the names used interchangeably a lot but but a, but a pyramid scheme more is where you have to put some effort in you you have to go in and recruit other uh parties and you get a percent of what what they do it's a, a multi-level marketing type of fraud you don't you know, there's a lot of those out there and, and if, if I've Googled it once before and found thousands of them that are that are there's a website that I've seen years ago that, that lists all the current multi-level marketing schemes going on. but um, but you, you really see and I deal with a lot more Ponzi scheme type cases, investment frauds.
2: Right. So with a pyramid scheme, um, you're buying laundry detergent or whatever product you happen to be buying and then you're recruiting other people to buy it from you. So, so there's an actual product there as opposed to a Ponzi scheme where there's probably no actual investment
0: well in some Ponzi schemes I mean those are the true Ponzi schemes you're talking about but but in some Ponzi schemes these days there there's actually a, a business component an actual business in in there that looks that looks legit and so there's a part of the scheme the of the overall scheme now uh, these days more recently is a is some type of legitimate business that's operating there, but the fraud is sort of in the background uh, surrounding that.
2: Okay. So you, you mentioned Madoff and, and of course we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about uh, the Madoff investment fraud, but, but that's a perfect example of what you've just discussed. There was a time when Bernard L. Madoff investment securities was a business that was actually running an investment business. And, and over time it turned into what we now know was uh, a, a perhaps the longest lasting Ponzi scheme in history.
0: And it lasted, uh, what a good 20, 20 years or so, as I recall. So,
2: um, yeah, I, I think federal regulators had asserted that it started as early as the seventies. So somewhere between 20 and 40 years.
0: And we've had cases that have gone on 10, 15 years, uh, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't collapse until the new money starts coming in. When, when, when some new money comes in, and you can't pay off the older investors. That's when the whole scheme collapsed. That's what happened to Madoff when he couldn't get new money in um, with the downturn, with the yeah. recession. All, and,
2: and all because of a, a downturn that affected everything. When when people stopped having money to invest and recycle and and started having to make withdrawals, it all fell apart. So, Greg, what are some common characteristics of a Ponzi scheme, what are the hallmarks of a Ponzi scheme?
0: Well, generally, you're going to you're going to see um, unbelievable returns, very very high returns. It, you know, Charles Ponzi scheme was uh, it doubled your money in ninety days, and uh, we've had ones as, as high as that. That, that you know, a, a tremendous return in a very short period of time. Uh, one of the things that 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 I sort of warn people about is that high commissions. If you, if there's there are brokers out there that are selling the deal. And the brokers are getting paid very high commissions to, to bring the uh, bring the product in. Um, generally, it's guaranteed to be safe. We we see that in a lot of these cases. They you know they promise with some trust or some backup or some hook to, to make you think it's very safe. Um, we've had cases that are that are allegedly backed by a bond, by a trust, by life insurance. Um, there was one big big, big case we had it was a couple billion dollars where where they, they said that there were reserve called the accountable reserves. Well, the accountable reserves were nothing more than than an entry on the balance sheet. Um, often these Ponzi schemes are marketed to the elderly, and so so that's a that's a indication of who's who's who is being marketed to. A self-directed IRA component is often uh, because that's the easiest thing in the world to steal somebody's IRA because it's just a piece of paper, and so you get somebody to sign a document to transfer their IRA. IRA over to a self-directed fund and then that that gets invested in the fraud. A lot of word of mouth marketing and and you know we see that in, in so many cases that, that one person just tells another about the investment, about the opportunity. Uh, we've, we've had cases where there's not even any real marketing materials. It's just all word of mouth. That's a huge part of it. Um, these Ponzi perpetrators are always try to show their, their good nature. And, and it seems to me that all the cases we've had, they, they, they offer a lot of charitable contributions and say, say they're giving away money to charities and they're trying, they're doing good. So there's, that's always sort of a, a tag, a lot of secrecy involved. You know, we can't tell you this. We, we, uh, um, there's some, some issue that we can't really tell you how we're making the money. We're doing it behind the scenes, that type of thing. And, and often it's some type of a hot new idea that 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 it's uh, um you you read something in the paper about some some new uh some new idea or or, or some new technology and the fraudsters will pick up on that and start marking some uh some opportunity that way
2: it's only a matter of time before there's uh there, there's a bitcoin ponzi although there probably already is one
0: well there's already been a few of them right? <laughs> exactly
2: <laughs> so you mentioned a couple times now word of mouth and and that seems to be a common element going all the way back to the start, going back to to Charles Ponzi, that that the people who are target, if if you want to get a thousand people to invest in your your fraud, you've got to either get a thousand people to trust you with their money, or you have to get ten people, each of whom has ten friends, each of whom has ten friends, and get those first people to trust you because they are presumably trusted by their networks. So you end up you end up replacing the trustworthiness of your early investors for your own and 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 it spreads through networks that way. Um, and and you mentioned connections to friends and family or connections to associations. One of the things that we saw, for example, with Madoff, were community groups, religious groups, people with close personal ties spreading the word through their networks and then investing in mass because you inherit the trustworthiness of the next person in the chain.
0: That's exactly right. They call it uh, affinity frauds where, where you you get involved in one church or synagogue or some, some group and it spreads like wildfire through that organization. And uh, everybody, friends of friends hear about it. and, and, and they want to get involved in it, and uh, it's all word of mouth. We had one case where the guy did a four hundred million dollar scheme. Never did any marketing. It was all word of mouth. It started with just friends and family, and and uh, and uh, just just spread from there.
2: So, some of the people who who get roped into Ponzi schemes are are unsophisticated, for lack of a better term, but many are experienced investors. How do experienced investors get roped into these?
0: It's the same the same way we we're just talking about. I mean, they're they're they uh, no friends or, or family that are get involved in it, and and they, once they get involved, they put their uh, they put their children in, or, or uh, invest for their kids, or put the college fund in it, that that type of thing. Uh, we had one case in in uh, in South Carolina that 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 took in all got all kinds of in a smaller town took all kind of doctors and lawyers that that were normally very sophisticated <laughs> investors but but they all the, the person was a local um well known in the community and and uh and everybody knew him and and so you know they just invested with for like that people got to know him and and uh just kept it kept it going where, where you're not doing a lot of due diligence to look at your to look at the at the, at the actual offering, they're
2: just based on trust. So one of the things we, we talked about, uh, about early investors being paid from, from late, by later investors, early investors often, because the scheme is robust enough in the early days to pay everybody, early investors will see financial success. So one way that a person can get lulled into a false sense of security would invested in what turns out to be a Ponzi scheme is they may have invested once and got a full return and then invested that in the return and gotten a full return. So you know you invest a hundred bucks on day one and a year later you've got over a thousand dollars. It starts to pre- to seem pretty legitimate and so the word of mouth spreads, more parties come in, and and it continues to blossom. The 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 habit of getting returns for an investor in a Ponzi scheme. Kind of becomes self-reinforced for the scheme. It's it's established its own trustworthiness, to, particularly to the to the early investors who typically reinvest. One of the one of the hallmarks for Madoff was that it unless you dove into the numbers, and we'll talk about this in a bit, everything sort of looked legitimate. You know, he wasn't promising blockbuster returns. He was promising pretty typical S and P 500 stable returns. So, you know, he wasn't promising to gun the stock market instead. He was, he he was just paying regular small returns over a really long period of time. And, and so instead of, you know, we'll give you 50% of your money in a hundred days, he delivered, I think in one quarter, something like 5% to his investors which wouldn't seem very exciting, except during that same quarter, the S and P 500 delivered a negative 39% return to its investors. So he was, he was outperforming the market significantly, but it was, unless you were looking at that, it, through just that time fence, it's nothing spectacular. It's remarkably consistent. And that was his selling point. So it, it's, it's almost a different psychology for Madoff then compared with the, the retail investors as opposed to institutional investors that, that invested with somebody like Ponzi, for example.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, and and there are more schemes the last 10 years or so that have been just promising uh, more stable returns, that type of thing. Uh, We, we, we had one case years ago where that, where the uh, perpetrator, would give his investors a break and, and, and on, on the financial statement uh, on the, on the monthly statement, he would, he put a, put a note on there that he was on vacation that month. that wouldn't show any returns for that month. So, um,
2: That's interesting. So, so they, so like Madoff, he, he basically had an operation dedicated to creating fake statements.
0: Well, they all have to have some sort of fake statement to, to show you what you're, what you've earned. And, and, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to do these days they could they could just whip up a statement real quick and and uh, and send it out and, and you know Madoff would had that whole root back room uh, where he would crank out the the, fa- the false statements but uh, but these days you can do fairly fairly quick and just do it on the internet and pop in the return some of them are so very unsophisticated but they still mail them out every month and show uh, very nice earnings every month and and then especially for the you know, the IRAs and accounts like that, they, they, and they convince them to, you know, roll over all their money every month or, uh, just once you get the scheme going, you just try to show such good profits that nobody wants to take their money out.
2: Sure. So how can an investor recognize a Ponzi scheme when they're being pitched a Ponzi
0: scheme? Well, the factors that we just talked about, I mean, we, we've, um, they have to do a little due, you know, due due diligence on their own and look at look at the investment, and look at the opportunity, and do some background digging. In so many of the cases we've seen, if you just done a little background investigation on the individual, you would have find out they were involved in an earlier fraud, and that should be signal enough. I mean, even Charles Ponzi himself had been. I mean, he didn't he didn't have the internet back in the 1920s, but 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 he had been arrested for bank fraud before. Um, in most of the cases we've done, there's been some other indication in the past that it would tip you off. It's, it's, you know, the guy's had some, some prior problem.
2: So, so kind of putting together what you've mentioned as hallmarks of a Ponzi. If, if someone is, is trying to lure you into an investment and using really aggressive sales tactics, uh, pressuring, pressuring investment right now, talking about, overly complicated or secret investment strategies, you know, if they want your money, but they can't or won't tell you what they're going to do to it. um, Those are signs. You mentioned documentation earlier when documentation doesn't match the pitch that they're giving you. That's, that's a, that's a sign. And, and, and from what you said, guaranteed returns or, or excessive returns, if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is.
0: And, and, so, and often when there's some, some sort of wording in the, in the document, it's obscure terms that you don't understand or the, there's no can, the cancellation uh, policies are very obscure and you can't understand them, there's a lot of secrecy involved in what they're doing or how they're making money. Or can't, we can't tell you how we do it, but you're, you're guaranteed a, uh, a certain part. Their related companies are always an indication where you've got insiders in the in the fraud that are serving as a trustee or a special agent to the company, um, some sort of implied credibility. They're they're doing something to make it look totally legitimate. And a lot of these cases, you'll see it will look legitimate just by the fraudster hiring a, a, a large national law firm or, a, or somebody very credible to to to, to imply credibility.
2: Mm-hmm. So, in your experience, how often have you found? that the law firm or the outside, well, I'll start with the law firm. How often have you found that the law firm is complicit in the fraud rather than simply window dressing?
0: Not that often where they're complicit, um, where, you know, but a lot of times where they're being used as a, as a prop to make it look legit. We had one case, so maybe 20 years ago, where, where, I sort of nicknamed the guy as a lawyer junkie. He, he would, Distract his lawyer by, by paying him to do things like complain to Delta about his frequent flyer points when when the fraud is right <laughs> under his nose. Um, that's excellent, excellent it.
2: Use legal services.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's is to resolve your frequent flyer dispute with, uh, but but you know, the, um, we had one case where they, they they had a TV at every at every room, and well, that was this was the operation to keep the employees distracted. You know, there's a TV in every every room in the office. They had like 75 employees. I always thought that that was there just to distract them from what was going on. But, but there's a lot of different issues like that.
2: We're talking with Greg Hayes, financial fraud expert from Atlanta, Georgia, on the subject of Ponzi schemes. So, Greg, what should an investor do if they think they are involved or invested in a Ponzi scheme?
0: Well, I mean, the first step is to try to understand as much as they can on their own and then find a find a uh expert to go to the authorities if they if they if it's investment fraud where they're gonna report it to the SEC or or hire a lawyer that's a securities lawyer to take it to them and 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 uh it'll probably be the best step to to hire somebody to look into it for them that that knows a little bit about the schemes and look into the company and look in the documents and find out what they can and let then let the lawyer take it to the to the SEC
2: in in doing some research on this subject i i saw some guidance from a securities law firm that said the last thing you should do if you suspect you are caught up in a ponzi scheme is call your broker because a uh, anything you say to them might later be used against you when the the trust the ultimate trustee or receiver tries to decide who gets what what returns and and the other issue is that the broker probably isn't going to be able to isn't going to be of any help to you if you can even get in touch with them
0: well, I think that's good advice, but, but I mean, you don't see that many of them. The, the ones that we deal with, you, you're you're not going through some public uh, a brokerage house. You know, years ago, a lot of insurance agents got involved in, in marketing different kind of schemes, whether promissory note schemes or, or different things where the insurance, your you're, you're regular insurance agent in a small town would be a trusted person in town, and they would offer very high... Comm- commissions to the uh, to the insurance agent to, to put books in these annuities or these uh, sort of sale and leaseback schemes were big a few years ago. Uh, and so so they, they would pay, uh, I forgot what the commissions were, 10, 15% commissions to, to put their clients in these kind of uh, uh, scams. So I, I would say to a retail investor, the best thing to do was to, to, to go to an attorney that, that, that could look into the issues and, and, and contact the right parties.
2: So, what happens to the payments that investor has received from a Ponzi scheme once the scheme collapses?
0: Well, the first question is is what happens to the money during you know during the process. Most of the, most of the money during during the lifetime of a scheme goes to pay back the early investors, and then it goes to support the lifestyle of the of the fraudster. It's usually an airplane or a, and a boat and and. Uh, Two or three houses and and you know all all the trappings of a, a, a of a very successful life. A lot of cars. We we find some very unusual assets. Uh, the job of in this situation, the job of a receiver or a bankruptcy trustee is to identify the pop, all possible recoveries and bring them back in, liquidate all the assets you can, and bring them into the into the estate to make make a just <coughs> distribution to the investors.
2: So what you're saying is that when the bankruptcy trustee is appointed, the first thing they're going to do is look at who got money and they're going to claw that money back.
0: Well, the first step is is to try to lock down everything you can and, and, and investigate, um, you know, any, any hard assets that are out there and there there's always some, you know, there's some assets that you can uh, look assets you can get in and recover and liquidate fairly quickly. And then you're starting yeah, that's the first phase, and the second phase would be to uh, start looking at all the investors and who got paid back from the um, who who really made a profit from the scheme?
2: You know there's a, there's a saying that if it if it flies or floats, lease it, don't buy it. and And with Ponzi schemes, that's sort of the one instance where maybe you hope they do buy it because then at least when you're cleaning it up, you've got a hard asset that you can sell versus cash that's just been depleted on monthly lease payments. Although, you know, spending $50 million on a jet, and a boat, uh, is, is a lot, a much bigger hit to the investors than, you know, 20, $30,000 a month in, in lease payments. So when talking about Ponzi schemes and unraveling Ponzi schemes, we hear a lot of talk about net winners versus net losers. Can you walk us through that?
0: Well, the, we always call them the net winners, or, the, or the, just the winners. Generally speaking, the winners are the people that, that got back more than they put into it. Now, there's different people that, that call winnings um, e- go b- even back after the principal they put into it. But generally speaking, you're talking about uh, trying to get back. The, the net winner would be uh, what you, the, the total that you were distributed from the from the scheme less the uh less what you put in and and these and and these fraudsters you usually keep pretty horrible records so so you're going back and trying to figure out exactly what went in and what went out generally we're starting from from the beginning to try to verify every transaction and we will put together a a profile of the information we have of schedule and send it out to the investors and get them to verify all the money that went in and all the money that came back and and a lot of times the money will be, uh, we, we ask for the investors to give us copies of the front and back of the checks that they invested with. So we can look at the back of the check and see if the money went to some related company that we didn't even know about. And oftentimes we'll see investment money going in some other company by some similar name, something like that.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I've been working a case where uh, there is a suspicion that the entire vehicle was run as a Ponzi scheme. I, I don't know that we're willing to say that yet, but much of the forensic accounting has been geared around figuring out when investments were taken in by the shareholder of this company, where were they deposited? There were payments that were allocated, that were supposed to be payments for invoices for services rendered that were deposited to personal bank accounts. There were payments for investments that from other investors that were simply handed over to earlier investors to pay them out. Very, so you, you raise an interesting thing, the forensic aspect of something as simple as looking at the front and back of somebody's investment check can reveal a lot of the structure of what happened. When you're doing that type of research, how long does it usually take to unravel the, the scheme? Some of these
0: schemes take you know, it takes years to unravel them by the time you identify the all, all, all the potential recoveries and recover money. Um, we usually spend the first couple of months dealing with hard assets that we've got and, and trying to understand the scheme. And, and uh, then after that, we, we try to get a claim form out to the investors as quick as possible to let them identify what they put in and what they got back. And, and, and then we have to depend on the number of investors. I mean, you've got some that are, you know, a couple hundred investors versus cases with thousands and thousands of investors. So, we had one with uh, three or 4,000 investors, most all, most all of them around a couple thousand dollars. Um, it was one that was advertised in national media, uh, in Wall Street Journal and Newsweek and things like that. So we had thousands of people to deal with uh, and, and that, that will take a long time to try to put all that together.
2: Well, considering Madoff's been going on for 12 years now or 13 years and has no end in sight, Uh, It's understandable. So we're talking with financial fraud expert Greg Hayes about all things Ponzi. Stick with us while we take a short break so our network can pay some bills with messages from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk war stories about Ponzi schemes and what they did.
1: Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, It's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at gavinsolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with financial fraud expert Greg Hayes about Ponzi schemes when we headed out for the break, we were talking about what happens uh, to payments an investor is received from a Ponzi scheme when the scheme collapses. Greg, you've been a trustee and a receiver unwinding these these types of uh, of schemes. what What determines how a give, how a given investor is going to do once everything has been marshalled and liquidated and, and you've considered all you've considered about each individual investor. What are what's going into your decision making as to uh, at what a given investor receives back, assuming there is anything for investors to receive back?
0: Well, the the biggest driver in the recovery for investors is how quick the case is brought, and 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 that's just critical. That that the earlier that the case is brought, that that the, the government agencies can move on it the quicker you can lock down the assets and freeze the money and and stop the stop the fraud and cut the expense uh, that's you know that's just critical and and it's, it's how fast the the appointed fiduciary can can move to sell the assets and 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 identify the claims and pursue recoveries we treat pretty much all investors as, as the same and we, we, we calculate the net winners and we find out what um, you know who, who got money and pursue those claims to bring back money into the estate and then and then there's several different distribution plans, and so it gets very technical on how you would uh, how you would calculate the distribution. But it used to generally was was always just a single pot type of a theory. You you take in all the money, divide it up by um, by the investors, and 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 make a distribution.
2: Are there times when and well, and so the the model that you're talking about the single pot model basically provides that to the extent that everybody is suffering a loss, they're suffering the same loss that, that somebody that everybody loses 20% of their investment or everybody loses 30% of their investment, but the loss is, is shared pro rata across the entire population of, of what are at that point victims. Are there times when certain investors should be treated differently, that they're a greater burden of the loss?
0: Well, and, and there's some methods that we that we use that, and and we've got three or four different methods that we use, and we uh, write up our plan as the plan of distribution as to how we're going to allocate the money and show the different methods and who would get what out of out of the different scenarios, and and you know that's something for the for the investors and for the judge to decide how, how the distribution uh, scheme is gonna is gonna play out as to what what different groups get different money. So a lot of the cases are different. They have different circumstances, but um, as a, as a receiver in a court of equity, you're trying to do the best you can for all the groups. Um, so that to treat all groups fairly is, is, is the best you can do.
2: So there, there's been a common thread in some of the bigger, more popular Ponzi schemes, Ponzi's scheme, uh, notably, and also made off and that is that people whistleblowers have pointed out that re- the returns that these investment vehicles are are offering are simply not possible using the explanation that they are offering as to how they're making money. And so with Ponzi, you know, he he based his investments purportedly on on the arbitrage of international postal reply coupons, basically prepaid postage and the difference between postage in the U.S. and postage in post-World War I Italy, which was much, much less expensive. So you could buy a postal reply coupon in Italy, send it to somebody in the U.S., sell it, and make more money because you sell it for stamps and then sell those stamps and end up with more money than you spent in Italy. And, and so that was the model that he alleged. There was a Boston financial writer who reported in early on in his fraud that there was simply no way Ponzi could deliver those returns. There was another writer who reported that there weren't enough international postal reply coupons in existence to be able to support the number of investors Ponzi had. And and despite these these reports, uh, the crowds defended him vehemently. His supporters defended him vehemently. Uh, Ponzi actually sued the one of the one of the Boston financial writers for libel and won a half a million dollars a trial. A half a million dollars in 1920 is, is quite a lot of money. Um, by the same token, Harry Markopoulos, a financial analyst, informed the SEC that the returns that Madoff was prom- was reporting as actually having happened were not possible. And, and he informed the SEC in 1999. 2000 2001 2005 and 2007 and at no point was he able to get the attention uh, that that was necessary for a follow-up investigation of any depth the the difference between these two examples i think is that ponzi's detractors were public and the public rejected the information that was contrary to what they wanted to believe which is pretty pretty standard confirmations but but it was the public that rejected it. With Madoff, the regulators rejected it. These are are these, I guess, overwhelming public delusion uh, about naysayers. Does that is that a common thread that you see in Ponzi's?
0: Well, I like to say in every in every case where I'm appointed, the investors always say this the same thing the first day, and that is. Everything was perfect till you showed up. Um, and, and and you know, I, I hear that in every case and there's always some guy that, that thinks that, that the receiver was there appointed by the government to, to, to you know to, to ruin the uh, to ruin the show. And uh, you know it's it's pretty common that that, that that's um, that they, the, the true believers really believe in, in, in what they invested in. They don't want to admit that they invested in a, in a fraud.
2: Well, it's expensive to, to admit that you've invested in a fraud, particularly okay. when you've been collecting returns.
0: Well, they've been looking so, at their savings so, going up every month and they think they're making a lot of money and all of a sudden to, to realize that all your money, I mean, it must be a horrible position to be in to look at your statement. I mean, one thing to lose money in the stock market, but a whole nother to know you were defrauded and, and you invested in a fraud and, and these are devastating. I mean, these are, uh, you know, people that, 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 lose everything. And, and, and the one thing that I never could understand is how many investors in these schemes have put so much of their wealth into one investment. And, and, you know, it's the one thing you learn early on to keep, keep everything in a different basket, but a lot of these, a lot of these investors just put all their money in one basket and when it's gone, it's all gone. Um, there's a very sad story. I, I, I remember from probably 30 years ago where, um, it was a, it was a, and, and, and I think about this gentleman a lot. It was a, a farmer that invested, um, his son called me one day years ago. And, and uh, the son called me and told me the story that the dad had invested in the Ponzi scheme that we were unwrapped. Unra- the first, it was a three level Ponzi scheme and it invested in the first fraud. And, and uh, he was, had been a farmer for 40 years. And, and yeah, I think about that farmer out on his tractor all those years and worked 40 years. And then, put all his money and put like half his money in this one deal. And and then he lost it all. And then his family tried to convince him, you know, we lost half the money. Don't don't worry about it. You know, everything's fine. He wound up going out to the old home place where there was an old house and putting up another mailbox and invested again in the second deal. And and the same thing happened. And then he put more in it think he was going to make it back. And they put it in the third deal. And uh, and he wound up losing all his money that he worked his whole career for. And I talked to the son, and he didn't know that the farm had been mortgaged, and Dad wound up and at, 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 uh, going crazy and was in the hospital, and uh, it was a very sad story. and And you think about people like that, that whose whole lives are disrupted by by one roll of the dice late in their career.
2: We talked earlier that some Ponzi schemes are are the the sole reason for their existence. They they exist solely to affect the fraud that they, they end up perpetrating and others grow out of existing businesses and, and Madoff is one example. I was thinking about um, I was thinking about another example of that. And, and what you just said about innocent people being affected really, really struck a chord Um, Petters group, a, a large otherwise normal business that, you know, owned an airline turned into a, almost four billion dollar Ponzi scheme that was created and run by its founder and 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 spanned across you know 60 companies with some 3,000 employees not all of whom were involved in the Ponzi scheme most of whom didn't know anything about it but it it, it you know the the machinations of Tom Petters, um who went to jail for for his fraud as as the company unraveled certainly affected all of the stakeholders in those businesses, all of the trading partners with those businesses, the vendors and suppliers, the employees and their families, because what was otherwise a pretty, at least outwardly looking stable financial enterprise, really there wasn't. It had been eroded by the fraud. I've how
0: many investors that, that, uh, Petters had, but he he also had huge investments by some major corporations as well, uh, and and um, he had a small back office operation that was falsifying all the uh, the documents showing the inventory levels that he was buying and what he was selling. But, but that one, uh, like I say, it was several billion dollars as well. And he would have been the probably would have been the number one financial fraud if it hadn't been for for Madoff.
2: Yeah, um, so. In terms of losses, let's let's dive into that. So Charles Ponzi's scheme uh, caused about twenty million dollars in losses over the course of about a year, and that's in in the early nineteen twenties. Um, now that those twenty million dollars would be worth about ten times that. Madoff was eighteen billion dollars in losses over what was somewhere between twenty and forty years. Um, Petters was. 2.3 no 3.5 billion dollars in in enterprise value that was that was propped up on a ponzi scheme what are what are the sizes of damages of cases that you come across
0: we've been involved in in, in cases all from you know from 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 10 billion to 3 billion i mean it, 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 it they just vary widely i mean one of our we thought we had a pretty big case back in uh oh, about before Madoff, a huge case for us was 500 million, but and then these other ones come along in 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 you know 2008 to 10 to 12 time frame and blow those cases out of the water. So they come in all sizes. I mean, in all number of investors, you get some with you know 10 to 20 small small cases, 10 20 investors that friends and family primarily, um, and 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 you know, we haven't seen. A very large one in our market in a long time. I mean, it's maybe five years or, or more. Uh, it, well, there's a recent significant case down in Mississippi on a on a, a timber sale issue where he was was uh, buying all the land and having timber on it. There was no, they never bought the properties. So, but there's a lot of cases in the, down in in, the, in Florida these days. And and but uh, but we haven't seen a, a lot of major cases here recently.
2: So. What are the what are the distinguishing characteristics between a big Ponzi scheme and a small Ponzi scheme? Are do they are are they shaped differently? Is it just scale? You you mentioned small ones tend to be clustered around friends and family. Is is that the big distinguishing characteristic, or is a small Ponzi scheme simply a big Ponzi scheme that ran out of time? I, I-
0: I think your your example is better. Just ran out of ran out of steam and didn't get in new money. I, you, they come in all shapes and sizes and and and, and, all, and all different types of companies. Some are just pure Ponzi schemes. We we've got uh, uh, a lot of people as we started out talking about Ponzi like schemes, Ponzi type schemes. Um, some of the judges have called them Ponzi in nature. I uh, wrote a, l- a long article on all the legal definitions of a Ponzi scheme. So there's all. It, and it makes a big difference in the in the in the in your case as to exactly the definition of what it is. But some of them have an operating component or, um, to make you think it's legitimate they, they can they can. In one case, we had a, a operating business that we kept we could we couldn't sell it, so we kept operating it for about three years. That that investigate that the profits that we we're spending off of that operating business wound up paying for the entire fraud investigation and the, and the, the process of the of the of the receivers to to identify and recover money. So you, you you see a lot of, just a lot of different issues. And, and and the main thing in these cases is try to move as quickly as you can to identify the assets and identify the potential recoveries and try to get it done as quick as possible before. Um, I always like to say that there's so many different angles to pursue. You can't chase every, you can't chase every issue. You got to know which you chase hundreds of rabbits and you got to pick out which are the winners and, and, and follow them. And, to get the best recovery you can as quickly
2: as you can. So you, you said something earlier that, uh, that investors have said to you, everything was great until you showed up. So you, you, show up, you walk in, you walk onto the scene. Who are the people who are typically cooperative? Who are the people who are typically difficult? Well, the, the, you know,
0: there's, generally some family members around and things like that that are very loyal to the, to the fraudster they have. In uh, some cases, the, you know, the, the wife or the, the parties don't even know the, the, what, what he's doing. But usually you'll find some people that are in, within the organization that are, that are totally, uh, they have no idea been working there and, and they'll help in any way they can to try to recover money. One of our most interesting cases was that the, um, the, the guy that did the fraud Actually, and it only it's only happened once in my career. Is, is he came in and 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 just wanted to come clean, told us exactly what happened and how it happened, explained the whole story. It was a fascinating story of how the whole fraud went down and how he pulled it off. And and uh, he told us everything, admitted to it, pled guilty, served his time, and is out of jail. And uh, actually, I did a, a a panel with him at a at a conference not too long ago. Um, I got to know him during the case, and and uh, it was a very entertaining presentation uh, keynote presentation at a at a national receiver conference to to have the fraudster on the stage that had actually done a $400 million dollar case um, how did
2: he how did he contextualize his fraud what was his approach to to, to his story
0: what happened was was he he had been reading up on get get rich quick kind of books and, and how to make money he just got out of jail I mean I just just getting out of, out of college and uh, and he ran across a, a a bigger crook, a bigger fish, as we started out talking about uh, a fish, but he ran across a bigger fish that was here from Australia. and uh, that guy convinced him to to invest money. So he went and raised like two hundred thousand from friends and family and and he was smart and then he only invested a half of it. He put a hundred grand in. and and he didn't know what he was really doing. He just put a hundred grand in it. he, 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 he lost that, but he, but he saved back the other hundred. And he started paying dividends to his friends and family and word of mouth grew, grew the case. And it, it, it just kept going for everybody wanted it. And um, it was a, a sort of a prom bank fraud where there was alleged money overseas and these prom bank notes and huge payoff was going to come in. So um, it just grew from that. He had a staff of people here in Atlanta of, 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 uh, he uh, just rented new office space at about ten thousand square feet of space, and and uh, maybe ten to twenty employees over there working, keeping up with everything. And it grew into a huge enterprise. They had all uh, people all over the country that were uh, uh, salespeople that were uh, sort of having their own schemes, raising money from from their groups. So, it was like ten different groups came together in one in one. And one fraud and funnel all the money to him. It was supposed to be all invested with this offshore offshore guy from Australia. So it, um, I mean, that's a very simple summary of it. But but that's they can grow like that.
2: So we talked a little bit earlier about uh, about the collapse, and you know one of the one of the hallmarks of a Ponzi scheme is that you need exponentially more investors the late, the longer the Ponzi scheme goes. Because you have more and more people that you need to to be funneling the investors' capital to, how? What are the ways that a Ponzi scheme collapses? I mean, short of short of the authorities knocking on the door and saying, "We figured it out. You're a Ponzi scheme." How how does a Ponzi scheme collapse?
0: A lot of times, it's a whistleblower, and I think Petter's the the woman that worked in the office uh, went to the went to the government and was a whistleblower. And um, that was a fascinating story. And one of ours, a, a case in South Carolina was a, was a routine audit by the sec. And, and they uh, had looking at it, the bank statements and, and seeing the, the, the uh, they called to confirm the bank statements and there was no such accountant, no such brokerage account with money in it. It tipped off the, uh, the sec through a routine audit. Um, so they come up all, all different types of ways. Uh,
2: how, often, how often do do the perpetrators realize that the, the, the gig is up, that they've got to get out, and so they throw the money in a bag and skip town you know, just the, before the, it all comes apart?
0: The funny thing that, that I never understand of these cases is is there's never an exit strategy. And you would always think that if, you, if you're you planning this thing, that you would have some way, some exit plan of what's going to happen when you get caught. And these guys never have an exit plan. You'd think they were going to, you know, have, have a elaborate scheme to get offshore or to be somewhere, or have some money stashed away. But rarely do we ever see anybody that has a plan. It just, when it, when it finally collapses, uh, it's it's over. And, and, you know, I think most of, most of the time, most of the cases we've seen, um, the guys go to jail. There was that one case in, in South Georgia, um, the guy was the bank president, and he disappeared. They remember the story: he fell off the boat between after, leaving Key West, going to Naples or something, and he disappeared. and and, uh, and they finally found him about a year or two later, when he was living as a bum uh, somewhere in Florida. But uh, hmm. but consistently, you you never see any kind of exit plan.
2: So. There have been, there's been commentary that, that Madoff never intended to get to the point that he got to, that he faced a financial crisis early in the firm's life when an accounting firm that wasn't supposed to be investing its client's money in another investment firm called and said, we're being investigated. We need all of the money back. And to give him, to give them all of the money back would have decimated his fund. So that's when it started. That 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 the later Ponzi activity was to fill the hole of that financial loss, and that there was always a, a hope that they could get in front of the curve, make enough money, and once and for all be done with the Ponzi activity. Um, is that is that a common belief among fraudsters? Are they are they just trying to to wait it out, or do they know what they're doing and and they're just doing it?
0: it's hard to have a clear reading from that even all the cases i've been involved in but but at some point something triggers where they where they where it becomes a ponzi scheme and, and there's no hope from that point but but they keep um uh, they keep pursuing they have to keep it going because they can't stop you know if you, if you watch some of the new shows or the movies on madoff where he said he, he felt for certain he had been caught numerous times but but it but it never happened um and and he just uh he just kept kept it going in, in most of my cases you'll you'll see you'll see them just keep you know they, they know what they're doing and but but they, they have no there's no way out their only way out is to keep it going and so they just keep keep they have to they have to keep raising new money in, in the one case I mentioned a few minutes ago um, the the guy that did the the Ponzi scheme was was trying to exit and trying to turn over the business to the related companies and that all fell apart and, and uh, when right when the scheme collapsed.
2: Hmm. Well, Greg, that's gonna be the last word on Ponzi schemes. Once you start, you gotta keep it going. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and experience. Greg Hayes is principal of Hayes Financial Consulting, a national financial advisory practice out of Atlanta, Georgia. Links to Greg's website and LinkedIn page will be on the show's website under this episode's show notes. Join us next time as we explore the business of the airline industry, what it's going to take to make that business fly again, and whether airline profitability can only come at the cost of passenger comfort. Next time on Business Disrupted, the wild blue yonder flies in the red. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and original music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.